Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 417 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in the first part of a two-part interview, Alexandra Benedict speaks with Doug Johnston about taking up writing at the age of three, her enduring fascination with dark and disturbing themes, the role of place in her creative output, and how synesthesia has influenced her use of unusual sensory details in her writing. Alexandra Benedict is a prize-winning writer of novels, radio drama, scripts, short stories and poetry, specialising in speculative fiction. She has had four novels published to critical acclaim, most recently The Christmas Murder Game, published by Zaffer in 2021. She's written one novel and nine audio stories within the Doctor Who canon, and has also co-written audio drama with her partner Guy Adams, including Arkham County, a horror drama for Audible based on the work of H.P. Lovecraft, and Children of the Stones, an updated BBC Radio 4 version of the 1970s television series. Before she embarked on her writing career, Benedict was an indie punk singer-songwriter as well as a composer for film and TV. She also acted in short films and on stage both professionally and with community theatres. She lives in Kent with her partner, their daughter and their dog, Dame Margaret Rutherford. So, Alexandra Benedict, hi, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Hi. So glad to be talking to you today about your writing and your life and your writing life because I feel like we're kind of kindred spirits in a way, a little bit. Um, You've talked in the past about being genre fluid. You've written across so many genres and on different formats as well, different forms of writing. And I'm going to come to all that as well, like audio (laughs) audio books and the novels and the short stories and the poetry and the music and the performing and everything else. (laughs) I don't know if we've got enough time, to be honest. But... (laughs) But I'm really, I read somewhere that you were writing at a very early age, like you were writing stuff at the age of like three and three or four or five, like really young, is that right? Yes, yeah, I started wow. writing stories probably three, as soon as, soon as I could uh, start writing at all, I was, I was, uh, I was following the oral tradition mainly, <laughs> but I also, I, I wrote, I wrote them down as well and uh, was writing really dark, odd poetry by five or six. There's some extant examples of um, very strange poetry about ghosts and deserted houses and uh, explains a lot, I think, about my later writing. So you were into the dark stuff and the ghosts very early? Yes, I don't remember a time when I wasn't. Right. Uh, and uh, my mum said that from, from a very, very early age, it was it was all the spooky things that I got into very early on. She couldn't quite understand why, because she she isn't, my dad isn't, definitely. But Yeah, who is this little changeling in the nest? <laughs> yes, exactly. Changeling has been used quite a few times, particularly <laughs> by uh, the Irish side of my family. Oh. Yeah. I take that as a compliment, why not? <laughs> I thought I would, yeah. And so did you always want to be a writer then when you were writing? Was that, did you, did, I mean, because I couldn't really have pictured what a writer was at that age. So were you kind of, did you already have a clear idea? Yes, I from four I I wanted to be a writer. I also wanted to be an actor and a musician and a singer. So I I, I had quite quite lofty ambitions from from a very early age, 
and I, I determined at the age of four I would be a writer and I would go to Cambridge. And I was a very serious little, little, little person. And so I made a plan about how that would happen. Wow. Um, which, is, which is quite cute now when, when I think of my four-year-old self. And I've got a two-year-old now, a two-and-a-half-year-old. And the idea that in a year and a half time she she could be making a plan to go to Cambridge is actually terrifying. What if she comes to you and says, Mummy, I want to go to Oxford? <laughs> Um, I'd also, I'd say that's that's absolutely fine, my darling. Do whatever you want, but maybe consider another university um, <laughs> as well, just to keep your options open, my darling. But then that plan actually worked because you did go to Cambridge and you studied English there, right? I did, yes, uh, yes, my plan worked. <laughs> so it worked. Did it work exactly according to the plan, or? Well, in that I, I got in and yeah. studied English, but my plan had been to go and to join Footlights and to to do acting there. Um, because lots of my heroes from when I was very, very young were comedians who had either gone to Cambridge and Footlights or, or been to Oxford and, and um, the Fringe. And that was kind of, that combined with uh, falling for the works of M.R. James when I was very young and knowing that he was provost at King's College, Cambridge. That that focused my ambitions on King's. But I, I didn't join Footlights because I was discouraged by someone there. And I got ME very early on. Wow, okay. So I didn't do acting either. So it didn't go quite to plan. But then plans, you know, are subject to change. Yeah, fair enough. So, Alterations, yes. So you, you weren't doing any acting there but were you were you writing were you writing stories or poetry what sort of what sort of things were you coming up with in your English classes well sadly because studying English at Cambridge there's no creative writing component whatsoever it's it's about studying language and literature so I was doing quite uh, in-depth research into well all of literature from 1300 to the present day written in English so it it is very broad strokes while going into depth and and learning technicalities of writing and effect and theory and I stopped writing almost completely when I was at Cambridge okay so up until that point I'd been feeling I'm going to be a writer, I'm doing this, and and then it just stopped. And it wasn't until after I'd done my master's at Sussex in 20th century literature after Cambridge that I then started writing again. I needed to not be in an academic context in order to write fiction, right? Yeah, which is interesting yeah. and not unusual. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I did it in order to be able to situate my own writing within the context of English literature. Sure. So were you you mentioned M.R. James. I'm going to come back to that, obviously, later. Mm. But was it always still in that kind of area of speculative and supernatural and ghost and horror? I mean, you seem to... I mentioned at the start, you you just you do switch a lot across a lot of genres, but you also mentioned that the first thing you ever wrote was dark and weird. So that's the kind of yes. that's basically your genre. I feel like was it always been like that all the way through? So when you were back to creative writing at Sussex, I think even if I tried to write something that was light, it would ch- change to something dark quite yeah. quickly, and I quite like that. Um, even even if I'm writing something, a short story maybe for. 
a magazine and it's not specified as either being crime or, or horror or noir or, or anything in that area, there would be some, an undercurrent running through it. So I, I've written what some people would call fantasy writing and others would call magic realism, but it's still got darkness running underneath it. Yeah. It's apocalyptic or it's dystopic in some way. So I can't get I can't get beyond my past darkness. <laughs> it's just there. But I read somewhere that I mean you mentioned you had ME at university, and I read somewhere that when you were very young you you were ill as well. I wonder if that do you think yeah. that's I mean this is not a psychiatrist coach situation. Yet, <laughs> but um, I, I mean that seems to me if you were ill at a very young age yeah. that that might have had something to do with your predilection for for the dark. Um, I I think it's definitely connected. Um, I had meningitis when I was two and remember very clearly being in a fever state and soldiers climbing the walls like ants when I was hallucinating and being alone. I remember the lumbar puncture. I remember being blind and deaf during that and afterwards. So I, I think that early traumatic stuff like that can't help but uh, impact on the way you, you perceive the world or, pro- or at least process it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was interested in, because I mean, your first novel came out in 2013, but you know, you were having short stories published by that point, weren't you? Mm, yeah. So in sort of various different places. So I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in how writers get, get to that stage, because I mean, that's what mm. aspiring writers are always asking us, isn't it? About, yeah. how, you know, how do yeah. you get your book published? But I mean, it's, it's, always, yeah. it's a much longer journey than people think, I think. And, oh, it's such a long journey. <laughs> um, and, and while I, I say that to uh, writers who are at the beginning of, of their path, that it's exactly that. It's a path, it's a journey, there'll be ups and downs. I don't think anyone truly believes it. Like they think, oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But but yes, I had, um, well, it was a poem, I think, was my, my first published work. And, and that came second in the, in the National Love Poetry Competition. Okay, I love, I love poem. Um, it was a love poem, but it involved... <laughs> A motorway bridge and people plummeting to their deaths. Of course, so. of course it did, Alexander. <laughs> yeah. So it was a love poem. And as I say, even the, the love poetry or, or, or romance would, would end up with some kind of disaster. Uh, I also had some short stories published in journals, online and, and in print. I, I co-wrote a, a no-budget film that got a Best Independent Film Award at the London Film Festival I just did lots of different things, trying things out, because that's that's how you start is any way you can. Yeah, and, and were there unpublished novels before the published one? Like most people have, you know. Yeah. Experiments that are in a drawer forever. Very much. My my experiment in in my drawer uh, was called. It's extremely pretentious. It's uh, it was literary. Well, magic realism, really, and and. Straight after my master's in 20th century literature, I, I wrote The Madness and Minutiae of an Undercover God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You can just see that on the table at WH Smith now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's going to go in all the supermarkets, isn't it? <laughs> 
it's not very good in itself. There's some occasional good phrases, but it's just not a good book. But also, as um, an agent wrote back to me and said, Neil Gaiman is about to release a book that is about gods existing in this world. Um, and um, I think you're one about gods in, in an English model village may be subsumed into American gods yeah. um, and not get noticed, Tricky. which I thought was a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, so the first novel, uh, The Beauty of Murder, came out in 2013. And you did that yeah. classic thing about, you know, writing about what you know, your own your own life and a time-travelling <laughs> serial killer. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But at least it was, yeah. I mean, the, well, the, I'm saying that as a joke, but actually it was set in Cambridge at university. It so was, yeah. you were using a lot yeah. of your own experience there. I mean, that is kind of, again, coming back to this genre thing, I mean, that is a supernatural crime novel, would you call it? How would you describe it? Would you even bother trying to describe it? Um, I th- well, the um, the marketing and PR teams sat down with me and while well, they were trying to work out how to describe it. And so speculative crime or speculative thriller was what they came up with. But yes, it fits into supernatural crime. Time travel is, is currently at least supernatural. Yes, I, I, I like to put strangeness into crime as if crime wasn't strange enough in itself. <laughs> Yeah, and I can imagine. I mean, that was published by Orion, right? So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's. I mean, again, coming back to sort of kindred spirits with me, I, I think. Mm. I don't know how you feel, but I sometimes feel that you know, big commercial publishers. Uh, I mean, it is their job, but they do struggle to, you know, because mm. they because they want to pigeonhole you. They want you to be yeah very similar to something else they already have, or very similar yeah. to a trend that's out there in the market, and that doesn't yeah doesn't strike me as that fits very well with your kind of writing. No. Not at all. It's very, very difficult. I, and I understand their issue is they, they don't quite know where to situate me. The book I'm doing at the moment that has got is a metafictional crime. <laughs> you know, that, that broad category. Yeah. Um, but at least Stuart Turton's come along and made that more, uh, more of a category. That's true, yeah. And I think I partially got the deal from pitching the idea was was uh, combining with Stuart Turton with whatever I said at the time. You, you know, our, our, our one-line pitch of this with this meets this. Yeah, yeah. Stuart Turton has helped me in, the, in that way. Forged a path. <laughs> I can remember I once did my first um, deal I got with Faber. And Faber, uh, they bought a book and they said, well, well, it's a too big deal. What's your other book? And I hadn't, didn't have anything, no ideas. So I, <laughs> so I just said, oh, it's Taxi Driver Meets Restless Natives. And they were like, that's oh. And they went, that's great. And then I wrote something completely different. <laughs> but it's like, you just can't. It didn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> they bought like, it. Yeah, they bought it. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I love that. But it's weird how we get, you know, you spend, you know, a year or two years, or a long period mm. of your life writing something, and then you're supposed to reduce it to a single sentence for an elevator pitch. It's quite a, an odd concept. And it's a completely different skill. When I have creative writing students um, and clients, and I've also taught the MA in crime thrillers that was at City University. And and part of my job when I'm teaching that is writing synopses, elevator pitches, how, how to boil down your, your vast world of, of 80 to 120,000 words in, into maybe 10. Yeah. And I have to say, I know this isn't great in many ways, but it, it does help you to have it a concise description of what you are writing 
of holding that in your head so you come back to it to see if you've gone majorly off track. Yeah. Maybe. I kind of feel, I feel similar. I mean, I know everyone hates writing synopses because, you know, they're, yeah. they're a pain in the arse, but I quite like doing it at quite an early stage, actually, just because mm. just it, it can help you clarify some stuff to get it on the page. Yeah. And even though it'll yeah. change and what you end up writing yeah. will be completely different usually, yeah. but it gives you a sort of, a, some kind of a map that you can then go off-roading and, and leave behind. Absolutely. I, I now um, write quite detailed plans, um, which which then I can use as a synopsis for my agent or publisher. But I, I quite like having things in place and then inspiration comes while writing and I can deviate and adjust the plan accordingly. But coming back to something that feels like the skeleton of the story is really reassuring for me. I know some people don't work like that, and and I admire that as well. Yeah. But but for me, blocking out the beats that the story is structured upon really helps me. Just coming back to that debut novel, The Beauty of Murder, I thought it was really interesting because it was set in Cambridge, and obviously there was a time travel element. So it, it, what I struck me is something that actually, I mean, writers are. Te- I'm terrible at trying to work out what my own themes are or the things that you keep <laughs> returning to, you know, until someone yeah. until someone points them out to you and you go, oh yeah, I, I do always write about that. But yeah. the one thing is that that sense of place and the idea of ghosts in a place, like the the physical. Mm buildings or whatever it is or you know actual yeah. items have a kind of memory and a kind of life that's gone before that strikes me yeah. as something that you have returned to again and again in your writing is that right absolutely yeah i really connect with places and i i really like to locate my books in places i know really well so i can walk through them in my head and feel like i'm touching the walls in all so i can give descriptions that i find authentic so even if I'm describing 17th century Cambridge, it's very easy to imagine 17th century Cambridge because modern day Cambridge, you could be walking down a path and feel like you're in, well, any time between the, the 14th and, and century and the present yeah. or in certain areas. It connects you very viscerally to the past in its stone. So to be able to write about places that I have connected with I, I can touch into the past much more easily and, and feel, well, I, I, I don't believe that there are ghosts in the walls, but I believe that places are a container for our own haunt. Right. So I, if I go back to a place where I, I've had something horrible happen, then I am thrown right back into that memory. Sure. And... I think the idea that that kind of haunting of memory remains is fascinating. So, so yes, I do. I do return to it again and again in different ways. Or also that we are our own buildings. We are our own haunted houses is something that I like to explore. Yes, that brings me neatly. That's like a nice segue. <laughs> brings me neatly to well talking about the evidence of ghosts, which was your second yeah. novel. Which I mean, it's right there in the title, ghosts. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there's a couple of things going on in that which kind of with echoes of the first novel. And one is you know the fact that the central character is a mudlarker, is doing mudlarking, so finding old things on mm. the shores of the Thames in London. And then also yeah. the thing that that I loved most about it was the funeral director 
uh, Frank. <laughs> he's, he, I mean, I, I've written a series of books about funeral directors now, so uh, that, ah. that pricked up my attention. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so the funeral director Frank, who sees ghosts, I hate this question. Where did the idea for that come from? Because it's so it's so smart, and this idea, like just what you said about about how we haunt ourselves, kind of. And it, mm. I, I thought it was really fascinating. I love ghost stories. Always have done. And I, I got the idea for the evidence of ghosts because my the main character Jonathan uh, just started chatting to me, and 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 so I just I asked him questions, and and that's how that world started to come through. Was sort of basically uh, as if I was having a an interview with with my main character. So I thought that was one of the when you say where do ideas come from usually usually it's kind of well i don't know really but that that one was he he just he just popped up and started chatting wow and he, and he's really lovely <laughs> I, I really like jonathan i miss him yeah that's fair enough um yeah are you going are you going to return to him you're going to write more about him um i well i think in in the pragmatic sense that uh there are readers who want more, and I'd love to write more, but uh, they you have to sell quite a lot for publishers to want to continue something. Yeah. And uh, I, I most certainly have not. <laughs> so um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing uh, the script of it at oh, the moment. Okay, cool. um, so at least I, I get to spend time with, with Frank and Jonathan and Maria um, and, and explore their world. Um, even if nobody else ever finds out about it. Well, I was, that's the other thing that I found fascinating about that book was Maria, who's who was born blind, but then had her yeah. sight returned, but then was wearing a blindfold, and so so she's effectively a blind character in, in the book. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, you've spoken very eloquently about you know um, using the senses in language, and and you, I, I believe, have synesthesia, right, which is the kind of the mixing up of the senses. And that seems another thing that, that you come back to a lot in, in all your writing is that using the other senses, the many other senses. And was that a deliberate point in this book that you were going to have this central character who was, you know, using the other senses and not sight? Yes, it, it came from, I went to a, a lecture that was um, about people who are born without sight, who then through technological advancement are then able to see and how traumatising that is and how difficult that is for the brain to connect the senses in a different way because those pathways haven't been forged from the visual side of things. And having synesthesia means that uh, I I connect to the senses in in a way that is unusual. So um, I wanted to harness that really. And as a challenge to have a character's POV who doesn't use sight, who is experiencing the world through other senses, whether that's through the five dominant ones that we know about, everyone knows the five senses, or all the other, the internal ones, the proprioception, and all the ones that are difficult to say, (laughs) that are about internal sense of balance and our placement within the world. We sense lots more than we realise. So it felt like a challenge and it felt like it would pick up on my own biases as well. And when I'd go do a check through, I would find that something had slipped through that was based on visuals. So so it was an an interesting point as well as really wanting to represent her well. And while I wasn't blind for very long, I I felt a, a kinship with her. Yeah. 
that I, I understood a tiny, tiny part of her experience. Mm-hmm. That was Alexandra Benedict in conversation with Doug Johnston. You can find out more about Alexandra on her website at akbenedict.com. And that concludes episode 417, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 418, in the second part of this interview, Alexandra speaks with Doug about writing in the Doctor Who universe, co-writing with her partner, and juggling multiple projects. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.